Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good evening and Merry Christmas. It is good to see you uh, and good to have you here with us on this foggy Christmas Eve. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and we are so glad that of all places you could be this evening that you chose to be here, and it's so good to see you. Uh, Well, this time of year has a tendency to lend itself to all sorts of family traditions. Everybody in this room, as many people as there are in this room, there probably are traditions, or at least as many families as there are in this room. There's things that you want to do this time of year. And even as I speak, some of you are thinking right now about the dinner that you're going to eat when you get home. I promise we'll get you out in time to eat that dinner while it's still warm. Some of you maybe are scurrying around the house preparing for guests. You've got all the different things that you do around this time of year for us over these last several weeks. It's been a time for us to indulge in our most favorite and beloved Christmas classic, which is Home Alone. And in that movie, as as you may know, Kevin McAllister's up to all of his hijinks. My sons, to this point, have seen it so much that they could probably put on a fairly convincing stage play uh, on on the spur of the moment. But whatever it is for you that marks this Christmas time of year, marks your favorite things to do, all of the traditions that go along with it, the truth is that we receive joy and comfort from our traditions because they deliver something familiar and expected. I mean, for you, the Christmas Eve service itself may be part of that tradition. It may be part of what your family does. Some of you are probably still a little bit salty about last year's Christmas Eve when we celebrated on Christmas Eve morning and you've been waiting all year for a moment of redemption and you've got it now. But the temptation for us is to listen to the Christmas story that exact same way, to view it through the lens of our own nostalgic holiday memories. And particularly as we hear a text like the one that that Bob just read for us here, we think about the manger and the hay, and we think about sheep and oxen and shepherds and wise men and the little town of Bethlehem and all of those kinds of things, and we walk away with nothing more than a peaceful nativity scene in our minds. But to only read the text that was just read for us this evening, to only read it that way, is to miss something spectacular. Because if we can set aside our familiarity with the text that we read together this evening, we'll be reminded of the the arrival of Jesus as a most surprising and unexpected event. It's something that 
no author could have developed on their own. It's a story so miraculous and so incredible, so full of promise and hope and deliverance, that nothing apart from the movement of God himself could have brought it about. So the question for us this evening is this, who is this child, as we just sang? Born in a backwater village to unimportant parents by any worldly standard who could be so significant and so special that 2,000 years later, we would, meet to, we would meet rather to read and talk and sing about and celebrate him. Who is this child that is so unique and so unexpected, unlike all of our traditions, that the course of the history of the world itself was changed with his arrival? And I want to focus this evening on three words that answer this question from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, which reads this, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And each of those words are profoundly important. Sermons and books could and have been written on each of those ideas that he is God, that he is God with us, and that he is God with us. Miraculous truth in each of those simple words. But we'll start by talking about this first, that Jesus is God. Jesus is, in fact, God. In verse, 20, in verse 22, Matthew's going to quote the prophet Isaiah, this passage of Scripture that had been written 700 years earlier. And just think for a minute about what the world looked like 700 years ago. You're in the early stages of the 14th century. Think about all the advancements and all the technology that had not yet been developed. Think about the life expectancy. Think about the nations of the world and the places in the world that had yet to be explored. 700 years ago. And in the very same vein, 700 years before the writing of the book of Matthew, the prophet Isaiah, being moved through the Holy Spirit, said this in chapter 7 of his text, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now that language is so familiar to us that we don't even see the spectacular truth that it contains. But I'd like you to consider how amazing it is that God himself came. Not just a messenger, not just an angel, not just a divine book dropped from the heavens, but God himself steps into time. Because this is not the way that we naturally think about humanity's relationship with God. And here's what I mean. A couple of weeks ago, Jessica and I had the opportunity to go down to Milwaukee, to the Milwaukee Rep, and see their performance of the Christmas Carol. It was a beautiful production, and when you see it, um, every time I've seen it and every time that I've read it, you're, you're reminded as to why it is considered a classic. It's this really beautifully written and depicted tale of the life of Ebenezer Scrooge. And it's a story that I'm sure you're all familiar with, but, but just imagine with me the story as it takes place. If we were to narrow it down, having lived his whole life in pursuit of money and devoid of the loving relationships that marked everybody around him, Scrooge is given the opportunity to look at the whole of his life, past, present, and future. And now, in fact, in the moment that he finds himself, the, the miserable future that lies ahead of him. 
And upon seeing all of the heartache that he'd caused and all of the love that he'd missed out on and all of the purpose and intentionality that he could have had in his life, he faces the prospect of an eternity spent in regret and suffering. And so, upon the last Christmas visitor leaving him, he vows to change his life in order to avoid that fate. It's a beautiful story, and it's, it's heartwarming to be sure. And to some extent or another, most of our Christmas stories communicate a similar idea. The protagonist of the story is exposed to the true meaning of Christmas, and they move beyond their selfishness to show love and generosity towards others. And we love those stories. We love those tales. Our Christmas stories are full of those ideas. They inspire us towards selflessness. But when compared to the one true Christmas story, we realize that those tales are incomplete. Because the true Christmas story doesn't depict humanity discovering the goodness that lies inside and turning to God in appreciation. It shows God himself stepping into the darkness of humanity to rescue broken and messed up people. And so God gave Isaiah the prophet a sign 700 years earlier. Here's how you're going to know that Jesus is God. He's going to be born of a virgin woman. And we couldn't come up with a more startling and less reproducible means of proving Jesus' identity than that. And here's the incredible thing. That is one of over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So if Jesus is not God, our Christmas stories and our celebrations and our traditions and our time together are at best inspirational. Our stories at best promote moral improvement on a temporary basis. But if Jesus is God, then everything now is different. It's different not only because Jesus is God, but because Jesus is God with us. The whole of human history had been marked to this point by man's desire to be in the place of God. Starting from the very first people with Adam and Eve in the garden, the devil comes to them in the form of a serpent and says, if you eat of this, of this fruit, you will become like God. And the initial sin of Adam and Eve wasn't just partaking in the fruit, it was the fact that they were desiring to put themselves in the place of God. And so you fast forward in history and you find the Tower of Babel, all the, all the people of the world coming around together saying, let's build a tower that is so great that it ascends into heaven itself, and in doing so, we will become like gods. And while we laugh at that idea as being so foolish and antiquated and silly, the truth of the matter is we do the very same thing when we ignore the commands of the Bible and ignore the declarations of God's Word and choose instead to pursue our own destinies and our own paths and our own pleasure, to pursue our own will instead of what God has declared and commanded. We seek to remove God in doing so and put ourselves in the throne of our own life. Well, what does all that have to do with God being with us? Because God alone is in a position to forgive those who've rejected and rebelled against him. There was no messenger that God could send who could provide forgiveness on his behalf. He had to do it himself. 
because our sins are against God, we needed God himself to forgive them. See, God would have been perfectly within his rights to leave us in our mess and to leave us in our sin, to allow us to experience the full weight of our consequences. But because God had set his own amazing love and grace toward us, he sent his own son, Jesus, to bridge the chasm between our sinfulness and his perfection. So Jesus then was born with us to be our substitution, to live the perfect life that we were incapable of living and to pay the penalty reserved for us. Jesus gave up the position of majesty and power that we desired to take from him in order to take up the wrath and the death that we deserved. And Jesus didn't come with all of the manifestations of his divine identity as God. He set all of that aside to come as Emmanuel, God with us. He became a dependent child born into a humble family. He didn't come as a grown warrior, as a conquering king, or as an angelic being. He was approachable and available and vulnerable. Holy infant, so tender and mild. In other words, he became like us in order to be with us. No longer distant or terrifying or unfathomable. He experienced all of what it is to be human to have friends and family and joy and laughter and sadness, to experience betrayal and mistreatment and even to be murdered. By weakness and defeat, says the old song, he won the victor's crown, trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. Pleased is man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And finally, not only did Jesus come as God, not only is he God with us, but he is God with us. Now, what kind of a distinction actually is that? Who is the us that's being talked about here? Well, if we were writing the story, if we were in Matthew's place, we would have naturally assumed that God came to save those or to rescue those or to be with those, to to dwell with those who were the upright, the observant, the successful, the respectable, the the normal, the acceptable. And we assume that that's, since that's because, rather that uh, since that's what we would do, it is likewise what he would do. But Matthew chapter 9 gives us an insight into the mind of Christ himself As he sits at dinner, here's what it says. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And all we need to do, friend, is look at those who received that first message of the Christ's arrival at Christmas to see the truth of that statement. Irreligious shepherds who could not observe the requirements of the law 
pagan magi who could not observe, uh, who, or rather who had engaged in spiritual divination. A young woman named Mary from a poor, insignificant family. And Joseph, a working-class carpenter from a backwater village. See, God came to be with us, with you and with me. The truth of the matter is that God loves broken people, in the words of one author, because broken people are all that there are. So he came to be with the misfits and the failures, the dysfunctional and the hurting. He came as a friend of sinners. He came for you and for me. So friend, would this be the night where you see for the first time or the thousandth time and be reminded of the gentleness and the goodness of our God? And as we remember the birth of that helpless, vulnerable infant, would we likewise remember that he grew up perfectly, that he died a cruel death on the cross, and that he rose once again from the dead to deliver us from Satan's power when we were gone astray, that he brought life and light to all he would call and to whomever would trust him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the greatest gift you could have ever given us. We thank you that you broke through the darkness and brought the light to us. We thank you that you have offered us the release from our own pursuits for significance and salvation and delivered to us more than we could have ever asked for. And as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ, would we see him as he is? He then is beautiful in heaven, beautiful on earth, beautiful in the womb, beautiful in his parents' arms, beautiful in his miracles, beautiful under the scourge, beautiful when inviting to life, beautiful in laying down his life, beautiful in taking it up again, beautiful on the cross, beautiful in the, in the grave, beautiful once again in heaven. Now let the beauty and wonder of the Lord Jesus be our last thought this evening and our first thought tomorrow. Amen.